0: Welcome back once again to the Religious Studies Project, the religious studies podcast that never ends. I'm David Robertson.
1: I'm Christopher Carter. And yes, here's hoping that we'll never end.
0: That's, um, we haven't ended yet. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, our plan
1: is 100 years initially, and then we'll see uh, from there. Um, and it will be a hereditary podcast as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. You'll be listening to our grandchildren um, presenting it. And in fact, you might be listening to this a hundred years hence and listening to us from beyond the grave. Yeah. Um, on that note. On that note, to this week's podcast is another interview recorded by Chris and it's on religion, youth and intergenerationality. So
1: it, so it is actually kind of on that note. I, Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> uh, we,
0: we, we didn't plan that. That's good. Um, the interviewee is Naomi Thompson and this is part of our ongoing SOCREL series um, addressing new directions in the sociology of religion in the UK. So I'll pass over to Chris and Naomi.
1: When we think about religion and youth, a number of images might come to mind. Um, Young people rebelling against their parents, young people as mere containers for the religiosity of their parents, creative interpretations of stagnant traditions, systemic abuse and a lack of agency, and so on. In the context of the United Kingdom, where we are recording today, with its historically hegemonic Christianity, one scholar has written that it's no secret that Christian churches are struggling to attract and retain young people. The current generation of young people has largely abandoned the church or never known it as a significant part of their lives. But of course, this misses much of what is going on. That scholar is... Naomi Thompson, our formerly stand who joins us today on the Religious Studies Project to give us a more nuanced overview of the broad topic of religion, youth, and intergenerationality. So, first off, welcome to the Religious Studies Project.
2: Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here at uh, Lancaster University at the BSA Socral Conference. Um, Naomi is a lecturer in uh, youth and community work at Goldsmiths University of London, and her PhD research is on young people's engagement with organized Christianity. She also recently did research for the Home Office around young people and organized crime um, to support the development of resources for practitioners. And she's now researching the experiences of young Muslims. And she also edits for the open access journal Youth and Policy. So now that we've got that out of the way, um, just keeping an eye on the time as well. Uh, but before we even get to youth and religion, I mean, what are we talking about when we're talking about youth here is it just children where do we where do we cut that off was
2: so so youth is a category really that was um devised for that kind of period between childhood and between adulthood. So it's kind of a post-industrial term. Um, Musgrove famously said that adolescence was invented with the steam engine. Um, but it really comes into its own in the 19th century, really, when um, the kind of early Victorian um, period, when um, the, the notion of the child as in need of protection um, kind of emerged and so you've got that kind of, uh, factory acts coming in, restricting child labor. But then there's this kind of category in between the child and the adult. Um, and that's, that's youth or adolescence. Um, and actually, um, in contrast to that kind of view of the child as in need of protection, youth has kind of emerged quite strongly as a category, um, in the past, in the present as a problematic category, mm. or quite often we think of youth. In terms of the threat, so in the Victorian period there was the child in need of protection, and then there was the youth that was more the threat. And if we didn't protect the child well enough, they might become the threat. Um, and towards the end of the Victorian period, you got kind of even biological kind of ideas of youth that the brain is in such a uh, a stage during this um, period of adolescence that a young person might is more inclined to engage in crime or antisocial mm. behaviour um, than at other times during. Um, their lives. Um, for sociologists today, it's very much viewed as a period of transition still. So that mm. transition from childhood into adulthood, and it's a period in which we kind of, um, we imagine that a lot goes on in terms of identity formation, and also a kind of socialization with one's peers rather than, mm. say, with adults or parents. So, and, and again, the peer group often viewed through a kind of lens of of something that's problematic rather than positive. Um, and I would say quite a lot of policy, research and practice today um, kind of takes on that notion of viewing youth as a problem mm-hmm. um, or identifying a problem to research or a problem to fix through practice or policy. Um, and we see that, I think, um, even in things like um, the way that youth services are funded um, a young person at risk of crime or of teenage pregnancy and an intervention mm. to kind of um, combat that.
1: Hmm. Would you say that in the West, youth is being extended?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think youth is um, probably, it's not just a kind of category that's that's um, been developed in a particular time period. It's also a category that probably has more resonance in certain cultures than others. So obviously, there are cult, non-Western cultures that still have, um, more child labor, more early marriage, perhaps. And then we, we obviously view that through the lens of what we understand in terms of youth now. And that inspires kind of debates about whether those practices are okay or not okay and what should be done, um, in situations where that's happening.
0: Mm-hmm
1: we could just spend the entire podcast discussing what we're meaning by the term youth. Um, but so religion and youth, why, why Why? might we be interested in it? I mean, some people, as I hinted in my introduction, might be tempted to just to see youth as, you know, a, a mere stage to adulthood, a mere sort of repository of ideas, people being fashioned into the adults that they're going to become. Like, like what's, what's so interesting about it? Why?
2: Well, I mean, again, that kind of idea of identifying a problem and researching that is kind of happening, isn't it? So I think a lot of research around religion and youth has looked at the decline of churches. And you kind of quoted me kind of earlier, kind of, you know, what I'm trying to challenge. I've I've, I've sat there and I've written myself, Um, although most of my research was with the young people who had chosen to carry on engaging throughout their youth. Um so, yeah, we, we approach, we identify a problem and we seek to research it and to solve it, don't we? And I think that's very much where um, research around religion and youth has come from, even um, although there's probably a lot more around Christianity than some of the other religions that is emerging. Mm. Um, and, we, you know, even concerns around things like radicalization, focusing again on youth as a problem. Absolutely. And there, there have been criticisms I- in research that young people are, talked about more often than perhaps than they're talked Mm -hmm. with so there is a a, an emerging field of researchers who who are saying no we're not going to talk about young people we're actually going to go and talk to the young people and i would probably place myself within that category of people who who are engaged in in in-depth qualitative research Mm. with young people rather than looking at statistics of decline or or um things that have gone wrong um and seeking to understand them without actually talking to the young people themselves.
1: Absolutely. And we'll hear about that in just a moment. But so you when I quoted you at the start of course you were identifying the problem uh, at the moment. So I don't want um <laughs> listeners to go away thinking that is your position, which they won't because we're hearing from you now. Um, but in terms of that then what are maybe some of the common assumptions about youth that maybe you're seeking to challenge a theory?
2: Well, I think there's there's an assumption that young people have left the church when we look at research around young people in Christianity. Um, When in fact, um, in my research, I've I've kind of argued a little bit that perhaps the church was the one doing the rejecting rather than the young people themselves in a lot of cases. So um, we often look at decline and say, why have people chosen to leave? Why have people um, abandoned religion? But Mm -hmm. actually that kind of stops us from looking at some of the things going on within the religion, within the institution itself Mm -hmm. that might be marginalizing factors. Um, And there's some of the things that qualitative research around religion and youth can bring out that some of the statistical research on decline doesn't illuminate. Mm -hmm. Um, And a, I've done historical research around the decline of the Sunday school movement as well, which occurred in the the 1950s and 60s. Um, And, you know, there's there's such an obvious assumption there that people stopped attending Sunday school because the world was secularizing, because social norms were changing. Mm. And actually that's ignored a lot of the internal decisions made by churches and Sunday Mm. schools that may have affected that decline as well.
1: Mm. That was something I wanted to ask, actually, was... Because that model would seem to suggest that the church or religion had been static and everything had just been static up to a point and everything was fine. And then something changed and people started to leave. But so, you know, is it a new thing You know, church? Presumably churches were always adapting and adapting to the needs of young people. Or was there something new that came with modernity maybe that...
2: Well, I, th- I think when Sunday schools were set up, they were um, very much connected to social need. They were um, teaching young people to read and write who were working six days a week and yeah. then on a Sunday could be taken into the homes of teachers and taught to read and write. And it was very much a lay movement. By the time we get to the 20th century, um, it's no longer kind of adapting to changing social needs. It's very much mm-hmm. an institutionalized thing. There's a kind of culture in the UK that you send your children to Sunday school regardless of whether you attend church as the adults, as the parents or not. And that's what changed in the mid 20th century is people stopped sending their young people and their children to mm. Sunday school. It, that that kind of tradition broke down. Um, and I mean, largely I, I think what we've got in the UK is p- people, parents have, You talked a little bit about young people being the vessel for their parents' religion. But actually, I think that there has been a tendency in the UK, and that's probably more peculiar to Western culture um, than to non-Western culture, where the parents perhaps, although they do a lot of the socialization, by the time the child is a young person, it's almost left to the church or the youth Mm. worker, and, and, and that's done within the institution itself in Christianity, I think you probably find that less in some other religions. Mm. Um, I've only done a little bit of research with um, Muslim young people so far, but um, some of the young women were talking about how they they don't attend the mosque recently, uh, regularly and attending the mosque is not necessarily something that the women in their culture do. It depends mm. on the, the the particular um Area they live in the type the, the the mosque that's nearby, you know their particular community, um, but they still very much are socialised into their religion.
0: Mm.
1: Yes, and I was hearing a, a presentation yesterday. I can't remember the name of the scholar, but I was talking about um, just that Muslims in Birmingham and their sort of after-school education and everything. It, mm. it seemed um, quite in contrast, maybe with the stereotypical norm of. Christian education. Um, so your, your empirical work, um, you, you spoke with young people. Yeah. Um, you spoke with young people who were participating in, in various mm-hmm. ways. I mean, so, so let's hear from them. What, um, what is Christianity for them? Why?
2: Yeah, yeah I think, one of the interesting things for me is a lot of the talk um, from recent research around young people, and it, it stems from Grace Davies' work around vicarious religion, but we also mm. see it in the American um, literature, literature Smith and Denton, about um, moralistic therapeutic deism yeah. and yeah. Collins Mayo et al. with the Happy Midi narrative. And somebody was talking about this yesterday and touched on this a little bit in their presentation. I can't remember who. Um, but there's this assumption that, that the young people's approach to, to religion has become indifferent. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that comes back to that notion that we, we're seeing the young people as the problem. Mm-hmm. When actually what young people are doing is they're changing the way in which they talk about and negotiate religion. So young people don't want to go to a church mm-hmm. and sit there and be talked at for an hour or however long the sermon is with no space to discuss or have questions um, and then leave. No. Um, so within their youth groups, they often find that there is more space to talk about things, um, to discuss things, but that's a disconnect with what's going on in the wider church. Um, so the young people that I spoke to, um, were all very much engaged with the youth work of their churches, but were engaged to different extents with the church itself. And there was a an anxiety about that transition to adult church. And for some of the young people I spoke to, that engagement with the wider church had almost already broken down, mm-hmm. um, whilst they still engaged with the youth work that was on offer. So in terms of vicarious religion, I actually found among the young people who were in my research, there probably was an element of that indifference that that the church is okay, um, but I'm not going to be fully engaged with it among the young people who weren't from church families that were Mm -hmm. engaging with youth work. Among the young people who were much more engaged with the church itself, there was actually a lot more of an element of believing without belonging um, to go back to Grace Davis' earlier research um, which she found was for kind of um families post-1945, wasn't it? Mm. That there are people who still believed but no longer belonged to the institution. And I think f- for many of those people, the next generation down are the vicarious believers who mm-hmm. are not engaged with the church, uh, but they're not hostile to it. Yeah. Um For a lot of the young people in my research who were engaged with the church, and had attempted to kind of forge a relationship, an ongoing relationship with the church, that some of them had had quite marginalizing or excluding experiences um, and actually had those kind of signs of hostility and that I believe, but I don't feel like I belong. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting older and I'm thinking about this transition to adult church and I don't know that it's going to work for me. So they were kind of becoming the believers who don't belong. Yeah. Um, and some of the examples, um, of that, you know, a young woman who was on the regional youth executive for her church and wanted to have one of the meetings at the church and was told she might be charged for the use of the room. <laughs> um, which obviously devalued her kind of contribution to the, to what she, w- she was doing for the church, essentially. Um, and, um, that affected her to the mm-hmm. point that she felt she didn't want to keep going back to church, but we're still engaged with this youth executive at yeah. the regional level.
1: So um you, I'm just gonna throw a curveball at you there. It's not maybe so much the believing without belonging of Davy where maybe people have become just gradually mm. not it's maybe it's 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 still engaged. There are reasons for not belonging. It's not just yeah,
2: that they, Yeah it, it's probably more um there's been a more significant kind of excluding experience um, mm. than, than grace davy outlines in believing without belonging um but she does um suggest there might be some elements of hostility towards yeah. the institution in, in that um, concept so yeah it's a slightly different um emergence of, of, of a similar con- concept I guess um but the the young people um you know they they' they are trying to negotiate, Religion and what it means for them in a culture that is not always open to... Where, where their wider lives might feel like they don't always fit with the way that the church is and the way that religion is. Um, and there's a lot of questions about the role of religion in their lives. Um, and actually, is the religious institution giving them a place where they can kind of resolve that tension? Or is it... Um, the way and the way it's set up and being set up over time um something that isn't an effective means of engagement for them um and if it's not do we then say oh well because they want to talk about things because they're saying actually they're not sure about this teaching around sexuality or um gender or or any other issue yeah. um they're vicarious believers who just want to believe what they want to believe or they've got this moralistic therapeutic deism where mm. they, they just want to hold on to religion but live a good life and be happy and, and believe the bits they want to believe and not believe the bits they don't. Um, I think that's a dismissal and a kind of, um, devaluing actually of what, what is changing for young people in terms of how they think about religion. Mm. I guess
1: might a lot of it be to do with we've all been young people that kind of so maybe everyone sort of feels like they know what's going on or they yeah. they know that they'll grow out of it. Or so there's kind of that
2: yeah
1: attitude. So time is ticking on and uh, we haven't even got to intergenerationality yet. Um, but one thing I always like to ask um, my interviewees is how do you go about doing this research? And you you told us about I mean, speaking to young people and working with um youth groups and that, but there's a sort of extra added complication when you're working with young people, isn't there in terms of sort of ethics and methodology mm-hmm. and that so so how does how does one ne- how did you negotiate that did...
2: well, I mean, I think methodologically for me, the thing that fits um most comfortably when working doing research with young people is to allow them to tell their story as openly and as easily as possible. So I, I like the narrative inquiry approach because it means that my questions are defined by their story rather than their story mm-hmm. being defined by my questions. Um And I think um it, in terms of the kind of movement towards co-production, towards participatory research with young people, that's our responsibility is there to kind of, let young people tell their story um without us kind of starting to define their story for them. And I think that's what happens too much for young people mm. in all areas of, um of life, of policy, of practice, of research, of, of things that, uh, like I said at the start, things being said about them rather than with them. Mm. Um So, so narrative methods are definitely the way forward, obviously in terms of consent and things, um, if you're accessing them via an institution, that's easier because you can ask the institution to gain yeah. help you gain the parental consent for for certain age groups, uh, institutional consent um, for, for for actually um, engaging them there. Mm. Um, but I think for me that the the biggest um, ethical responsibility we have is to actually talk to young people, to, yeah, to do yes, rather than just deciding things about them without Mm. involving them in that process.
1: Um, I know that you're here to be the spokesperson for um, contemporary research on religion and youth, Um, but you're not the only person doing this kind of research. Um, If you could maybe just sort of drop a few drop a few names, some other interesting studies that you're aware of?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I found really significant has been Collins Mayo et al.'s um, research around the faith of Generation Y uh, and mm-hmm. even their previous research. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything they conclude but i think it's interesting research where they did talk to young people um and there's a lot um that comes out of that around the religious chain of memory and the passing on of religion and whether that chain of memory is broken um for young people in the uk um in 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 this in terms of christianity um i think um uh, the stuff that um Matthew Guest, Kristen Orne, um, I'm trying to remember who else was involved Is in that project, Sonia Sharma, um, their work around Christianity at university has yeah. been really interesting because we do see that dominant um, evangelical Christian on campus and they've actually pulled out a lot of the more nuanced expressions of Christianity that lie beneath that that perhaps mm-hmm. are not as visible all the time. Um, so that's really interesting. Um I'm trying to think of some something to recommend that's not um about Christianity um but I guess I I'm, uh, I'm yeah, kind of you're, thinking you're, about my research yeah, on yeah um
1: and we can we can append some of that yeah. to the point. Here.
2: In terms of research with Muslim young people Sugra Ahmed who's I think she's at the uh she's in Cambridge at the Wolf Institute and she has done some really good research uh about accessing the voices of young British Muslims really really excellent research
0: yeah.
1: and um listeners who and viewers who um might be interested in that in, in Cond mayo and in your sort of nuancing of that you have an article in the uh, journal of beliefs and values um called christian youth work teaching faith filling churches or response to social need um which we will again link to with this um as I said, time is ticking away, and I asked another couple of questions. We might have to. the uh, The intergenerationality aspect's kind of kind of been there, but just since I've it up at the start, is, is there anything you, you have to say about
2: yeah. intergenerationality? I mean, I think we um, we have a tendency to assume that patterns will continue don't we and i think america is a good example of that because the national study of youth religion there has kind of found that over time there has been a um a pattern of young people kind of engaging with religion in their childhood disengaging in early adulthood and re-engaging later Mm. um and i think that's very easy then to assume that as young people disengage they'll still re-engage later and actually um we need to be um not assuming that patterns will continue because hmm. things are changing and young people are changing and, um, religion is changing, perhaps not fast enough, perhaps not in response to the right things, hmm. um, all the time. Um, but I think we have to is- expect change rather hmm. than pattern in the way that, um, religion is passed down the generations.
1: Yeah. And we must always remember that we haven't had data for that long you know particularly we're talking about generation mm. it doesn't go back that far before we don't have any really worthwhile
2: no. data no, to no. be
1: going with so that's a very good point
2: especially research that actually talks to the young people themselves as well
1: absolutely um, so as a final thought then um, so I know that you're currently you, you're working with um, Muslim youth mm-hmm. um, so you know how, how do you we see Insights from your previous work, helping with that, or have you started that work? Are you finding it, you know, to be a different challenge?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's different. Yeah. Um, Muslim young people are in a, a smaller; they're not in the, the majority religion in the country. Mm. They're they're in a group that's often persecuted and stigmatised, and that affects the way they engage with their religion in different ways. Um, so, I think there's there's less vicarious religion among that category i'm not saying there's none at oh, all no. um but a lot of the I, I i haven't done research with enough muslim young people to for it to be generalizable um but young people have talked actually about how um they feel a real responsibility to represent islam positively so a lot of them are actually um engaging more with their faith in order to kind of be a positive representation of it in a hostile culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's some interesting findings coming out. It's early days.
1: I realise there's a whole lot more we could have said, and that was sort yeah. of a, a snapshot of your work, and very much rooted in a, a UK context. These dynamics are going to be different um, in, in the rest of Europe, in America, and in non-Western context, mm-hmm. probably even more different, but um, very useful to... Um, to get a, a flavour for why it's important to do this sort of research and how to go about doing it and what it has to contribute to the broader study of religion. So thank you, Naomi.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you very much to me for that interview there.
0: <laughs> We've never done that one before. That's good. Yeah.
1: Um, so we're delighted to have had that interview there. And a, a few other Uh, podcasts and other researchers came up in there. David Vos was mentioned, I believe, because he's got uh, a lot of um, work looking at uh, trends and sort of religious transmission and that sort of thing. So do check out his podcast uh, with David uh, speaking about quantitative approaches. Um, and also you might be listen, uh, interested in um, Dusty Hosley's interview with Lynn Davidman on um, conversion and deconversion as concepts in the sociology of religion, which isn't one of the
0: Sockrell series, but quite clearly engaging with relevant uh, topics. Indeed. Next week's interview um, isn't part of the Sockrell series, and it's an interview with M.J.M. Hundert uh, called Death, Music and Ritual, Contemporary Requiems in the Commemoration of Death and mm. Violence. And that was recorded by Brianne Fallon earlier this year.
1: Yeah, no, we're looking forward to that. Brianne's quickly becoming established as, uh, one of our regular interviewers. So Indeed. delighted to have that. Um, we've got another, not much more of the Socceral series left. That's us, uh, that's
0: past the halfway point, isn't it? Indeed. I think there's another three episodes to go. Yeah. And um, we'll complete that by, by Christmas time, just in time for the Christmas special. And then we'll be taking a couple of weeks off over the Christmas period to allow you to, um, well, you know, so you can enjoy the festive season without having to worry about missing your favorite podcast.
1: Yes, and as we say, we just referred to it there as the Christmas period, but we are in a context where um, cultural Christianity is hegemonically dominant. And so we do tend to um, use that term for the season, but we could call it our winter break, our festivus, our, our Whatever you wanted to
0: call it. Indeed. And we're going to be abandoning the use of the AD uh, calendar as well as it is also Christian uh, Mm -hmm. cultural hegemony. And we'll be referring to things and using the Discordian calendar from now on, which dates everything back to the publication of Ulysses by James Joyce.
1: That I'm looking forward to the next semester. Indeed. (laughs) That'll be good. That'll be good. Without further ado, before we babble incoherently even more, uh, we should just say um, if you want to get more of these podcasts into your ears. Uh, One way to do that is to subscribe to our mailing list. If you go to religiousstudiesproject.com, you can subscribe via MailChimp and decide when and how you want to get those to your inbox. And that's graciously sponsored by the Australian Association for
0: the Study of Religion. If you want to support... The uh, project yourself. You can use our Amazon affiliate links. That's dot com, dot co, dot uk, and dot ca. In which case, you make Amazon give a bit of their profits to us.
1: Absolutely, and if you want to join over four thousand people following us on Facebook, how many? Over four thousand. Four thousand. Four thousand. <laughs> four thousand. Sorry, I'm, I'm 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 all Lambeth at the moment. <laughs> um, and there's approaching four thousand on Twitter as well. But we're also on YouTube. Tommy's been um. Diving into the YouTube channel, trying to make it a bit more user-friendly, um, adding tags and proper descriptions to the episodes and everything, so
0: you should check us out on there as well. And there'll be some exclusive content coming up on that channel very soon, not least the Christmas special, which I'm currently editing. Um, other than that, you know where to find us. Please do join the conversation, either on the website itself in the comment section or on Twitter, Facebook or anything else, and uh, we want to hear from you.
1: And together we're gonna to say are we gonna do it together as we, as we as we always do thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening.